Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Well, it was one wild, wild week in the discourse for us extremely online people, which I talked about in the last episode. I talked about the letter and the reactions to the letter. And since I made that episode, there has been a counter letter put out, which I'm not going to discuss in this episode because preview of upcoming events. I will discuss that in the next episode with somebody else. So let's go ahead and talk about all the other things that happened this past week that don't involve extremely online controversies centering around speech and censorship and canceling people. Uh, Let's start where I have been starting, which I guess is kind of also canceling people, but the unemployment numbers uh, for the week ending on July 4th, we had an additional 1.3 million people file first-time unemployment claims. And as I've been pointing out for the past couple of weeks, it seems like we're at this plateau of anywhere between 1.3 to 1.5 million a week filing new unemployment claims. And this seems to be what economic forecasters are accepting as our new normal for right now. Now, as I'm sure everybody has noticed, Some states and some localities are starting to rethink their reopenings or starting to scale back a bit on their reopenings. Here in Atlanta, I'm I'm very confused about what my city is doing because Mayor Bottoms issued an executive order saying that we need to go back to phase one reopenings, which would close back down dining rooms and restaurants. It would close back down malls, it would close back down, a lot of basically go back to the whole essential versus non-essential service conversation. But the thing is, when Governor Kemp reopened the state in his executive order, he specifically stated that no counties or cities could make their own sorts of plans on how exactly to phase openings. So I'm not entirely sure what is and is not open in my city anymore. And there's also an ordinance that, well, not an ordinance, an executive order that Mayor Bottom signed mandating that everybody has to wear face masks in public, but it is not enforceable because, again, that would go contrary to Governor Kemp's executive order when he reopened the the state. So I don't, I don't know. I do not know what is going on in my own city anymore. I don't know what's open. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but that is a situation that is going to start becoming more and more prevalent in more and more places, especially places like Florida and Texas and Arizona and a couple of other states that are starting to see spikes in coronavirus cases. And so now you have mayors and governors kind of rethinking, reopening, which in the grand scheme of unemployment numbers, I'm I'm afraid that this current new normal, as bad as it is, and like I've been saying, this is that's bad. That's that's an insane amount of people every week filing new unemployment claims. I think the number is going to go up if we have to go back into re-lockdowns. And how bad that's going to affect it, I don't know. I don't know how cooperative people are going to be at this point because, yeah, that I like I've been saying, there's just. I don't know how you're going to do a second lockdown without people just completely losing their shit. Like people lose their shit right now over businesses mandating people wearing masks in their stores, which is well within their rights to do. I don't know what is going to happen 
if mayors or governors start saying that you have to wear face masks everywhere or that we have to rescale back the reopenings, that we have to go back to either like a phase one or even even beyond that. I don't know. <laughs> this is a little scary and I don't know what the next couple of weeks are going to bring. But one thing I do want to remind everybody of, if you are somebody who is unemployed or underemployed right now, and you are getting the federal assistance, you're getting that $600 a week, note to yourself, the week of the 25th is the last week you will be eligible for that. When it was initially kind of reported when this whole program first started, it was done as like till the end of May, or excuse me, till the end of July. But the way the calendar works and the way unemployment weeks work is they end on Saturdays. And the 25th will be the last Saturday of the month because the next Saturday would be August 1st, which would thereby invalidate the last week of August. So you only have a couple more weeks that you will be eligible for that $600 payment. As far as I know, Congress has not taken up anything to extend that or put something new in place. So just be warned if you are... Uh, like I said, unemployed, underemployed, you are depending on that $600 a week. That is going to be going away in the next couple of weeks. So prepare yourselves, people. Just, oh my God, I don't know what you guys are going to do. And as far as state unemployment, I mean, that varies from state to state. So you're going to want to check with your state. I know a lot of states had kind of extended the amount of weeks in which people could file for unemployment and kind of changed up the amounts that they would authorize, but that varies from state to state. So if you are in that position, go ahead, start now, start making your plan, start figuring out what you're going to be left with once the federal unemployment assistance goes away. Just prepare yourselves. Because like I said, I'd, I've not seen Congress do anything yet. And I mean, that's two weeks away. I can't believe we're already in the middle of July, but yeah, that's like two more weeks and then that program is done. So Fingers crossed for you guys that somebody figures out something because obviously this unemployment situation is still an ongoing problem. It's going to continue to be, be an ongoing problem. I can see it becoming an even bigger problem. And I know the whole federal unemployment assistance thing is very controversial in libertarian circles. I get it. I hear you. I know. I am of two minds of it myself. But I mean, something's, something's got to give here. Because there's about to be a whole bunch of people who are really, really, really not going to be able to make ends meet in the next couple of weeks. So that's another situation that can just turn into a whole, a whole, a whole mess, a whole powder keg of bad, awful, no good things. And that's literally the last thing we need right now is more bad, awful, no good things being added to our pile of bad, awful, no good things. But Moving on from that to another bad, awful, no good thing. On July 6th, the Trump administration announced that for the fall semester for colleges and universities within the United States, any student that is here on a foreign visa, if their university is engaging in an online-only course schedule for the fall semester, those students are no longer eligible to be inside the United States legally. They will have to leave and go home. Okay. Again, another controversial topic in libertarian circles, which I don't think it should be, honestly. I mean, this should be a no-brainer. But 
This has created a massive, massive backlash in the academic community. Um, Harvard and MIT have already filed suit against the administration for doing this in the arbitrary and capricious fashion, which is the same reason that the Supreme Court just told the Trump administration that they could not do DACA the way they did it. Not that they couldn't rescind DACA, but that they did it in that arbitrary and capricious way, and therefore that invalidated their actions. So this lawsuit, or I think they're two separate lawsuits. I don't think they're suing in conjunction with each other. Go along that same lines that this was an arbitrary and capricious decision. This was not put forth through any kind of public notice or any kind of public comment. And this is something that came down on July 6th. I mean, college fall semester starts, depending on where you're going, anywhere from like late August to September. So we're not talking a huge amount of time here for these kids to figure out what exactly they're supposed to be doing. There's also an open letter out there against this policy that has over 300 professors signed on to it. So yeah, the, the backlash has been pretty severe in academic circles. And a couple of points I want to make on this. First off, obviously, universities have a financial interest in this. Um, foreign students are typically paying full freight. So obviously, this is going to cost them a lot of money, which they're probably already being cost a lot of money anyway, because now you have to try to sell the concept of online courses, but still charge people for them. Like Harvard famously is still charging the full, I think it's a little over 50 grand for the fall semester. And they are going, well, at least the undergrad program is going to be completely online. So there's that. It's a significant loss of revenue for universities. And also it's just, it's not fair. I'm sorry, it's just not fair to students who did everything the right way. They did it legally. They're here, they're trying to fulfill the promise that they made when they got these student visas, and through no fault of their own, they cannot fulfill the requirements of being able to physically attend a university. Like, I'm sure if it was up to them, they would gladly be able to go to university because COVID wouldn't exist and everything would be back to normal and we could all go back to living normal lives. Unfortunately, that is not the situation we're in. And here's where the administration is kind of trying to have whatever they want kind of go either way here because one of two things is going to happen. And both things have kind of been stated publicly that they certainly wouldn't mind if either one of these things happened is it's either going to force universities to open for fall semester, which the federal government has no business trying to tell universities when they should be open and under what conditions. That is something that should be decided between university administrators, the staff, and the student body. And it's going to be different for each college or university because it's going to be dependent on your locality, on the on on how much space you actually have at your university, like can you do social distancing and stuff like that? Like using Harvard for an example, they're completely canceling all undergrad in-person classes because those classes typically you have a couple hundred people per class. But graduate studies are still going to be taking place on campus because those classes are a lot smaller and you can actually have students be six feet apart and have enough room, 
like enough physical space in a room where students can go and attend in-person classes. So, I mean, not every university has the physical space that Harvard has. Some have more, some have less. I mean, it's just, it's not a decision that the federal government should be weighing in on one way or the other. The other way they get what they want is if the colleges and universities don't reopen for the fall semester, then all of those foreign students have to go home, which I'm sure it is of no surprise to anybody how this administration feels about immigration, including legal immigration, including students who immigrate here legally in order to get an education, which the whole idea behind that program was you kind of get them here and then they get the education and then they stay here and use the education in our economy. So it's just, it's, it's awful. And when you look at, especially when you think about the fact that there is also this very economic nationalist push to bring back manufacturing and industrial jobs, the vast majority of students who are in like industrial engineering, um, any kind of engineering, STEM, all of this is mainly foreign born students. Like you're going to have to have these students here in country ready to fulfill those jobs if you want to bring all of that manufacturing and all that industrial back here. So it's, it's just, it's stupid. It's stupid, stupid, stupid kneecapping of our economy and of just trying to engineer a situation that really it's just not it's not their place it's just not their place to try to force colleges to open and it's not fair to tell students that did it that did everything the right way and through no fault of their own they cannot go to school that now you have to leave and a lot of what i've seen as pushback on this is like, well, if it's all online, then why don't they just go back to their home country and do it that way? Here's the problem. Not every country is a first world country. You do have students that come here from third world countries. You have students that come here from places where internet is either very spotty or non-existent. You come, you have students that come here from households that may not be able to afford that kind of stuff in their home country. You have students that come here from places like China, where even if you have the money, it's just the internet is censored there. Like you cannot get access to the tools that you are going to need in order to attend U.S. college classes if you are in China. You're not going to have access to any of the Google programs that you're going to need. You're not going to have access to Zoom. You're not going to have access to much of anything. And even if you did... I don't think I would feel super cool sitting in mainland China right now talking about what the hell ever over an internet connection that I know is being listened into by my government. Like there's just, there's so many obstacles here and there's also just time zones. Like what are you supposed to do if here in the United States, your class is at 10 AM in the morning, but at your home country, it's at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. Like they just, there creates so many barriers of just not physically being here in the country that even though, yes, theoretically, you could go back to your home country and do this online, but logistically, it's really not going to be a possibility for a lot of students. And asking students and also their parents, because I mean, clearly 
somebody's going to have to pay for all of this toing and froing of going back to your home country and then going back over to the U.S. once schools reopen. Like, that costs money. Like, that's not something that you can just do on a dime, which is what you would have to do right now. And it's not something that everybody just has money to be ferrying their kids all over the globe. Like, it's just not logistically feasible to do this and still have these students be able to continue their education on the same path that they would have been if the administration had just said, listen, okay, we know it's COVID. Things are weird. Things are crazy right now. You can go ahead. We'll suspend the rules for fall semester. We'll take it back up again for spring semester that as long as you are attending your online classes, you can stay within the United States. Like that would have been the simple, easy, humane thing to do. But this is the Trump administration we're talking about. So simple, easy and humane are just not things that occur to these people. But yeah, it's just it's a really bad situation and it's just really shitty and unfair. It's just it, it's the cruelty is the point. I mean, there's no there's no need for this. There's no need to go out and make a special case of these kids who are just trying to get their education and stay on the same path and not have to, like, skip a semester or have to completely drop out altogether. And considering it's the middle of July and there are very, very, very few schools that I know of in the United States that are going to have open campuses for fall semester. Even if you wanted to transfer, I don't think you would have enough time at this point. I'm pretty sure all the all all kind of admissions processes are probably already closed for fall semester. So I don't know what exactly you would expect these kids to do. Like, it's just it's such a mess. It's a useless, needless mess. And it just it it sucks. But also kind of on the topic of schools and not secondary education, but K through 12, um, yeah, it's the middle of July. And so we're having to have a discussion of what to do with both public and private K through 12 schools. Um, New York City has said that they will not be for the fall semester completely opening up their schools. Basically, they're going to do this weird staggered thing where kids will be actually physically in school two to three days a week. And I'm assuming they're like going to kind of rotate this to make sure there's only X amount of kids in a particular school at a particular day. But then the rest of the time, they're still going to be expected to do their workload at home. Um, that was fine enough when New York City was in lockdown and parents were at home with their kids because they couldn't go to work either. Obviously, that was not an ideal situation either. Not every parent wants to be a homeschooler. Not every parent is equipped for that. Every parent that I know that had to go through it was just like done by the third week. But at least that was like the end-ish of March. And so it was kind of already like the end of the school year. So it's like, okay, we'll We'll muddle through this. We'll make it through summer, summer somehow, and then we'll figure this out for fall semester. Well, now we're in a situation where New York is in phase two of reopening. People are expected to go back to work. Well, now what the hell are you supposed to do with your kids? Like, you can't be two places at once. You can't be at work, and you can't also be at home homeschooling your kid. Like, this is just, this does not work for working families. Like, I have no idea how anyone's supposed to navigate this, and... I'm sure there are going to be plenty of other localities who are going to have to struggle with this very same thing. And 
I mean, I, I don't know what a working parent is supposed to do. <laughs> like, if your kid, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to make the argument here that schools are supposed to just be warehouses for kids, which, I mean, they are, but that's kind of not the point I'm trying to make here. The point I'm trying to make here is if you are going to have kids not going to school for a full week, like not physically going to school for a full week, but still have to do like a full week's worth of schoolwork and you have no adult supervision at home and there's no like daycare or anything that you can put your kid in because obviously those have to be socially distanced too. And so I'm sure those are already full. What are you supposed to do? Like what, how, how is this supposed to work? Especially if you have like young kids, like what if you have like kids that are in like second or third grade? I mean, maybe you can get away with this from anyone like, a sophomore in high school up, but anybody younger than that, yeah, you're going to have to have an adult in the home making sure this happens. Like, I just, I don't even get it, but that's going to be a conversation that we're going to see crop up more and more across the country because obviously we're getting to the time of year where we have to start thinking about fall semester and you have to start thinking about, okay, well, how is my school district going to handle this and then what am I going to do as a parent if my school district does something along the lines of New York City's or if they just stay completely closed altogether like what what are we supposed to do with these kids so I guess it, it, uh, the school situation this year is just going to be so bad and I don't see it being much better for spring semester. I mean, I cross my fingers and I hope that maybe something comes up that makes things easier or better, be it a vaccine or at least a good treatment path or people realizing that kids aren't really vectors and that they kind of don't really get all that sick, but then you have to worry about them coming home and it's, oh my God, it, it's going to be a mess. It Fall semester for all schools in the United States, it's going to be a bit of a mess. So just parents who have school-aged kids, I feel for you. I'm not in your boat, but I feel for you because I have no suggestions for you guys as to what the hell you're supposed to do with your kids this school year. But moving on from that, we got some new Supreme Court decisions this week. Um, the first one that I want to talk about, and this will kind of go back to when the decision about how employers could not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or sexual identification came out, the question was, where does this leave religious institutions? And like I had mentioned, there was already cases in the system pertaining to that. And we got the decision this week that yes, there will be a carve out for religious institutions. Now, as I said when I was discussing the original decision that employers could not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or sexual identity, this has been kind of the uneasy alliance that's happened in a couple of different states on like a state level. Now this is on the federal level that there are laws on the books that you can't discriminate, but religious institutions can on the basis of the separation of church and state. Do I like this? No. Do I understand that the Supreme Court has to work with the laws as they exist and with the standards as they exist? Yes. I mean, I don't really see 
how they could have ruled that religious institutions did not have the right to do this and did not run afoul of the First Amendment. So I expect this to be probably... We'll see. I don't. I don't really know if this will be challenged. I want there will be a challenge somehow. I think because now you have the argument, which is not an invalid one, that okay, if it's okay for a religious institution on the basis of their religious beliefs to say that I don't want a homosexual male teaching in my private school, then why can't any other private business say, well, I am a devout. Catholic and I think homosexuality is a sin and so therefore I don't want to employ a homosexual man either you know that that's that's a valid argument and it's one I mean I don't have an answer to I mean and this comes down to freedom of association which has just been such a hot topic over the past week in the cancel culture wars in the freedom of association wars (laughs) but there's really not an easy answer to this because like I said there was no really other way for the Supreme Court to rule on this case, but it does leave a big glaring hole in the whole idea that, okay, if this institution can do this, then why can't that institution do it? Like, why does religious institutions have these special, I don't want to call them privileges, because honestly, I don't think people should be discriminating on the basis of much of anything, honestly, but that they have these special legal protections that say that they could fire somebody if they found out that they were LGBTQ based on the fact that their religion doesn't acknowledge such people or thinks that such people are sinful, but that other people who don't necessarily have religious institutions as like legally defined, but do have very devout beliefs and have their own businesses that they cannot also implement those same restrictions. I mean, I don't, I don't know. That is a hard one. And like I said, I don't like anybody discriminating against anybody. I don't think that it's kind of absurd in 2020 that anybody is concerned about what anybody else does in their bedroom as long as you're not bringing it into the workplace. Like, who gives a shit? But not everybody feels that way. And so the Supreme Court did end up giving that carve out for religious institutions. The one Supreme Court ruling that I think has the most impact and it has not been discussed a lot. And I'm kind of surprised because this is actually like pretty freaking huge. Um, The Supreme Court decided that a good chunk of Oklahoma, in fact, about half of Oklahoma actually is Indian reservation is Creek Nation Reservation, which that is huge because let me try to explain. Like, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're not part of Oklahoma or that all of a sudden, like, Creek Nation just owns all this land. Like, that's not what it means. It means that for all of that land that was just deemed reservation territory, if somebody within those lands commits a major offense, like murder or something like that, It cannot be tried in Oklahoma state court. It would have to be tried in federal court. Anything else would have to be tried in tribal court. Basically, it removes the state of Oklahoma from having any kind of real jurisdiction over those lands. And how this ended up happening is before Oklahoma was a state, um, Congress had granted these lands to 
the Indians and said, okay, this is, this is yours. This is reservation land. There you go. And then once Oklahoma was made a state, the state of Oklahoma kind of took over the governance of those lands, but nobody ever changed the terms of the treaty that existed before the state of Oklahoma that said that that land was reservation land. So Gorsuch basically decided, he wrote the majority opinion for it, that, okay, since nobody ever revisited this topic and nobody ever revised it to say that this was not reservation land, then it is reservation land. And so now half of Oklahoma is not under the jurisdiction of the state of Oklahoma. This has some pretty serious criminal justice ramifications because now at this point, now that it's been basically deemed invalid that the state of Oklahoma ever had any jurisdiction over these lands, any charges against anybody, anybody from the tribes within those lands is now basically not null and void, but now you can go back and challenge your, your cases and you can challenge those verdicts against you and say, well, the state of Oklahoma had no standing to bring any kind of case against me. Therefore, I should not be in prison right now. And then obviously going forward, any kind of crimes that are committed on those lands are either going to be handled by the federal courts or by tribal courts. Kind of a big deal. We just chopped the state in half and nobody really talks about it. But it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening with those cases, especially anybody who does want to challenge the verdicts against them. I'm interested to see how that's going to go down in court. I'm interested to see if anybody tries to go back and revise the treaty to say that the state of Oklahoma does have jurisdiction over those lands and that it's not reservation land. Um, yeah, Creek Nation ain't really going to go for that, but I'm sure somebody's going to try it. But yeah, that's that was just a really fascinating under-the-radar decision. And also one of those that just shows that Gorsuch is a textualist. And we kind of talked about this on the, the sexual orientation case, is that Gorsuch reads the law as it is written, and it's basically, it says what it says. And that's basically what he did here. It's like the treaty says what it says. Nobody ever updated the treaty. Therefore, this land is under tribe jurisdiction, not the state of Oklahoma. So, interesting stuff out of Gorsuch this, this session. And the last case I want to talk about that came out is the one related to Trump's tax returns. Um, kind of a split decision here. Supreme Court ruled that Congress does not have the right to access his tax returns, but Southern District of New York, where there is a case pending against him, has the right to access those tax returns. Here's kind of the bigger takeaway from that story. I mean, obviously, SDNY is now very happy, but the whole argument that the Trump administration was making is the one based around presidential immunity, that as long as somebody is president, they should be immune from any kind of prosecution in any way, shape, or form. And basically, the Supreme Court just said, no, that's not right. Just because you're president does not mean that you have super special powers and that you do not have to comply with legal requests and subpoenas the same way everybody else in the United States has to. That is fucking huge. The whole concept of presidential immunity has been one that goes all the way back to Nixon. And to have the Supreme Court, 
definitively rule that presidential immunity does not exist. You do not have special powers. You're not special. You still have to comply. That is going to have a huge lasting impact on the office of the presidency going forward because obviously I don't know who the next president's going to be, but I don't expect this environment that we've created where presidents are kind of viewed as fair game to ever go away. So I'm sure in the future there will be another sitting president who is charged with something in some court and basically this says, yes, you will have to comply. You cannot be like, I am the president and I don't have to do it. No, you have to comply. You have to comply with the subpoenas. You have to comply when you're asked for your tax returns. I'm interested that they said that Congress doesn't have access. And I can kind of understand that because there's not a valid reason for Congress to have access to it the way there is for Southern District of New York to have access. Like Congress just wants it just to to look like SDNY wants it because there's a case pending and this is pertinent information. So interesting little split down the middle on that one. Um, People have wondered if that means that we are not going to see Trump's tax records before November. I mean, if Congress had gotten a hold of them, yes, obviously we would. If SDNY gets a hold of them, I am not holding my breath that somebody isn't going to leak something. Somehow or another, this is going to become public knowledge before November, or at least parts of it, at least enough of it. And so that will be very, very interesting to see how SDNY handles that. But moving on to the last thing I want to discuss, and wow, there's there's been a lot of legal stuff to discuss this week. I just realized that. But the last thing is that Donald Trump has now officially commuted Roger Stone's sentence. He commuted it. He did not pardon Roger Stone. Pardon Roger Stone is still a convicted felon, but he commuted his sentence. So basically at this point, Roger Stone is a free man. I think he's out of jail already. I'm pretty sure. But yeah, this one has been one that's caused a bit of controversy because you can feel how you want to feel about the prosecution of Roger Stone and whether you feel like it was legitimate or whether you feel like it was bullshit. It happened. He was convicted by a jury of obstruction of justice and was sentenced to, I believe, seven years in prison. So, I mean, he went through the legal process and that's what was determined. The bigger problem here is that we all know, you know, I know, everybody knows, the only reason Roger Stone's sentence got commuted is because he's Donald Trump's friend. Like, there's plenty plenty of people sitting in prison right now on charges that are even more bullshit than Roger Stone's, but I don't see anybody rushing to go commute their sentences. No, this was because Roger Stone is Roger Stone. And it's interesting that Roger Stone gets commuted, but Michael Cohen didn't. What is the difference between those two men? One of them testified against Trump and one of them didn't. So it's a little difficult to separate the fact that Roger Stone was one of Trump's people and that he did not flip on Trump and he is the one that gets the sentence commuted, whereas everybody else is still sitting in prison, including Paul Manafort, which 
How pissed does Paul Manafort have to be right now, honestly? But speaking of Michael Cohen, actually, um, he was allowed out of jail on house arrest because of COVID. And this idiot, this fucking idiot gets a privilege that literally millions of other people would just kill for. What does he do? He blows it by, by violating his house arrest. And so now he has to go back to prison. Like, how stupid do you have to be? Like, you got the golden ticket. You got to leave prison and go home because of COVID and because you have some kind of special magical people that actually like you and you blow it? God, you're stupid. You'll go back to jail. Dumbass. But, so, that's about that. And I just, I don't know. A lot of people have gotten mad over the whole... Well, president shouldn't be able to commute people and, and Nancy Pelosi wants to offer up some kind of bill to take that away. But, um, yeah, that would require a constitutional amendment and yeah, that's not happening. So expect to see a little bit of grandstanding and showboating from Democrats in Congress over the next week about taking away commuting powers from the president, but you really can't do that because it's in the constitution and you're not getting a constitutional amendment passed through this Congress or probably any Congress ever, ever, ever again. So good luck with that guys. But yeah, I mean, we all know I mean, it's, it's Trump. I mean, what else is there to say at this point? Of course he commuted Roger Stone's sentence. I'm just surprised that he did it now. And that's really the only part of this that surprises me because this is the first thing that I've seen Trump really do that makes me think that maybe he thinks he's not going to win in November. So best to do things now, because I mean, quite honestly, the attack ads write themselves. I mean, he commuted one of the sleaziest dudes in politics basically because he didn't flip on Trump. Like it's it, come on now. You already know what you already know what team Biden's going to say about that. You already know what Democrats are going to say about that. The fact that you went ahead and did it now instead of waiting until after November, which again, I've mentioned this already, but it's the middle of July. I mean, it wouldn't have really been all that major to leave Roger Stone in prison until after November if you thought that you were going to win in November. So this is the first thing that I've seen Trump do that makes me think that maybe he might be a little worried about November, which he should be, given the numbers that are coming out now, which I mean, polling numbers right now are just still so, I mean, given everything that's going on, I don't even know how you read polling numbers right now. Like there's just so much shit going on. That like I I don't know, I I don't know how much of this is going to stick to him. I don't know how many people are genuinely unhappy with him versus just unhappy with this whole situation and whether they're going to blame it on him or blame it on somebody else. Like it's just everything is still so far up in the air that I don't think you can really make any November predictions right now. Like I don't I don't even know what's going to happen next week. I can't begin to tell you what's going to happen in the freaking fall. So we shall see. But. Yeah, that was just the timing of it really just kind of made me side-eye it. Like, hmm, like you, you, you're you, kind of making moves right now that 
if I were somebody who felt very comfortable about my position in November, I certainly wouldn't do because I certainly wouldn't want to deal with the bad optics. But again, it's Trump and we all know Trump doesn't care about bad optics. That's only for normal, rational people who aren't made of Teflon and don't have anything ever stick to them and still have people that'll support them no matter what, even if they shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. But at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.